It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On the northeastern tip of the nation, winters can be bitterly cold. Until 1960, Maine held its statewide and congressional elections in September to avoid the freezing weather when most other states went to the polls. The state was reliably Republican, but the margin of victory for Republican candidates proved a useful bellwether. As Maine goes, so goes the nation, the saying used to be. Never more so than its final September election, the 1958 midterms, when Maine elected a Democratic senator for the first time, predicting a larger Democratic wave two months later. Early voting has started across the country in this year's midterms, but we won't know any results until Tuesday night. With four days to go until the midterm elections, I'm John Prideau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's at stake in the midterm elections? The big guns are out. Donald Trump has three rallies planned before Election Day. Barack Obama has popped up in several battleground states. The former presidents will, separately, converge on Pennsylvania at the weekend, where Obama will be joined by a lesser-spotted figure on the trail, Joe Biden. The Tuesday after the first Monday in November, Election Day, is nearly here. How could these midterms change America? With me for this final episode before the midterms to try and make sense not just of what's likely to happen, but what the consequences of these elections will be, are Idris Kaloun and Charlotte Howard. Charlotte, what is going on in New York? The election in New York is much closer. The governor's election in New York is much closer, I think, than many Democrats would have expected. You have Kathy Hochul, who is the presiding Democratic governor, and you have a challenger in the form of Lee Zeldin, who has had a pretty strong candidacy, and he has really put crime at the center of his message to voters. And Idris, other than the Wizards beating the 76ers, what's been going on in D.C. recently? Yeah, things have been fine. It has been a whirlwind so far. I, Looking at myself, I see I have relatively unkempt hair, which when I see my dad, the first thing he says after he like gives me a hug is, you need a haircut. <laughs> I'm so glad that persists into adulthood. That seems like something that he would say to you as an adolescent, but I'm glad that that's oh, part yeah. of your 
familial dynamic. For listeners who don't have the benefit of our video feed, I have to say Idris is looking pretty pretty dapper to me. Oh, thanks. Thanks, John. Though, Idris, are you one of these people who minimizes everyone else and it's just your face on the screen? No, I'm actually staring right at you. <laughs> um, and that's what I do. But um, I try to hide. I try to put like a notes page over my face or something. Well, we've got a lot to talk about in this week's podcast, so let's get into it. We're going to begin with your DC office mate, Elliot Morris. I spoke to Elliot, who is our friend and resident data guru at The Economist, and I began by asking him what people are getting most wrong when they're arguing about what's going to happen on Tuesday. What are the worst takes and what's some of the analysis behind those bad takes so that our listeners can try and avoid repeating them? Well, it's hard to pick just one thing, so I will pick two. And the first is that this really is shaping up to be a normal midterm, despite, I think, the rhetoric about, say, the economy or abortion um, or enthusiasm on either side. uh, The predictions that our model makes based only on the fundamentals data are coming very close to the predictions we make based off of polling data. So what that means is stuff like, you know, whether or not this is a midterm election, the popularity of the president, stuff like this is a really good indicator historically of what's going to happen in the midterm. Typically, it goes against the president's party. And that's what's happening. Despite all the noise from the campaign, things are coming roughly in line. And then the second thing is about this economy narrative. I mean, inflation is high. Gas prices have fallen in the last couple of weeks, but they are still up over the last year in America. And punditry says, well, Americans look at their wallet, they look at their pocketbook, and therefore they vote against the party in power. Um, But if these traditional indicators are the things that are predicting the outcome, then maybe all this other stuff doesn't really matter all that much. And maybe American politics really is predictable based off of these historical patterns. That was our takeaway in 2018. And now a week before the election, it seems like that might be our takeaway next Tuesday. So you've built a polling average and you've also been considering the fundamentals, which, as we've discussed, may be an even better guide to what's likely to happen than the polls are this time around. Putting that all together, one week out or less than one week out from Election Day, what is your central forecast for what's going to happen? Well, in the House, we see a race that the fundamentals would suggest, uh, a race that leans significantly towards the Republicans. We give them around a 75% chance of taking the majority from Democrats. Um, And we think on average they're going to win about 224 seats, which is two more seats than the Democrats won in 2020. Um, That is not necessarily what I'd call a wave election, where you win 30, 40 more seats than you had last time. I mean, this is um, a double-digit but not 50-seat gain for Republicans. It's, It's large but not sort of history-defying. And then in the Senate, we see a close election where control of the chamber could really go either way. And that's down to competitive uh, seats in uh, about nine races, but real toss-up scenarios in seats um, uh, such as Georgia and Nevada, which Democrats currently control, and then Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman used to have a very large lead over Um, Mehmet Oz, but uh, has since fallen off a bit. And then finally, consider the probability in Arizona. Democrats have about an 80% chance there. So factor that in. Democrats look like they could hold on. um, But if they lose two of these seats, then they lose control of the chamber. And that is a recipe for a very close election in aggregate. 
Elliot, pretty much every election I've covered in America, journalists write articles in advance saying that this is the key Senate seat that will decide who controls the majority. And of course, they pick different ones. If you had to pick one Senate seat that our listeners should really keep an eye on on election night, which would be the one you'd focus on? I would pick Pennsylvania for two reasons. First, it takes a long time to count those ballots. So if you know Pennsylvania on election night, then you don't have to wait three days for for them to count all the mail ballots afterwards. So it sort of dramatically speeds up the verdict. Um, And I'm selfish and I want to know results early, so I would pick Pennsylvania. Second, though, um, it provides a sort of firewall for Democrats if they win Pennsylvania. Beating expectations there or matching expectations would mean they're likely to hold on in Arizona and probably Georgia as well. Um, And so they could lose Nevada, which currently leans towards Republicans in our forecast and still hold on to the Senate. Um, The good news for people watching on election night is some counties in Pennsylvania count very quickly. um, And we can infer the results in other counties based off of patterns um, in those quick counting places. We can also infer results on early voting data um, from surrounding states. So we should have a pretty good idea, I think, by maybe midnight, um, uh, what's going to happen in Pennsylvania, and that'll tell us what's going to happen in the Senate. Which of the counties you'll be watching particularly closely in Pennsylvania? I would watch Allegheny County. That's where Pittsburgh is. It's where the Democratic candidate John Fetterman is from. Um, And if he has high enough turnout there and reasonable support in the sort of surrounding white working class um, areas of Pittsburgh, uh, then he'll have a really good shot. Um, If, however, turnout is low there, Democrats haven't turned out in the city center and the surrounding areas seem to be going for Oz sort of regardless of the fact that John Fetterman is from there, um, then that'll be a leading indicator of what's going to happen. And the rest of the state probably wouldn't be good for Democrats. OK, Elliot, well, whatever happens, you have to come back and talk about it next week, please. Uh, I would be thrilled to do so after some sleep. Charlotte, politics is not like sport, right? We don't just cover elections because we're intrigued by who might win them. We cover them because... The people who win them then get to make important decisions which affect the lives of hundreds of millions of Americans. These elections really matter. But before we get to the consequences of the midterms, let's get the prediction or the prognostication bit out of the way. What do you expect to happen next week? Well, for that, of course, I rely more on Elliot. But it does look like Democrats are certainly going to lose the House and may well lose control of the Senate. I don't know, Dries, what you think. But The thing that I've been most struck by is that it's not that surprising, right, that you have the opposition party set to make big gains in the midterms. We've seen this again and again throughout American history after you have one party seize the White House and gain control of Congress. Two years later, the pendulum swings backward a bit. And what's different, though, is that it's a traditional midterm, but it's not a traditional Republican party. The tenor of the Republican Party, the types of candidates that are likely to be elected are fundamentally different than those that came before. And that's why this is kind of a weird election, because in some ways it's absolutely normal and in other ways it's absolutely new. Yeah. So as I've been staring at my unkempt form in the mirror, um, I don't know if you can tell I've been reading Frankenstein lately, but uh, upon reflection, uh, a few somewhat nihilistic thoughts have, have occurred to me based on the fact that this midterm is, as you said, utterly predictable in terms of its probable outcome. 
And that is that as journalists, I think that there are two errors that we often make. One is we have a tendency to say that this thing might matter a lot. And in fact, most things don't matter at all. Most things, you know, don't change the tenor of elections very much. Your default prediction should be that something new and exciting that's bubbling up is actually not going to change the tenor of elections. I mean, even we saw with abortion, right? Abortion seemed to change things for a bit. There was a surge in early voting. That's dissipated. Uh, These things have a fade-out effect. January 6th committee, I think a very similar thing as well. And then I guess the second sin that journalists commit is upon receiving the result, they overdetermine the causes, right? They say, well, you know, it was always obvious that John Fetterman was, you know, not going to be able to run a good campaign if he loses by one percentage point. If Oz loses by one percentage point, it's going to be, it was always obvious that a carpetbagger couldn't win in Pennsylvania when in fact they're the same result. Um, So I think that, you know, we don't do as much horse race coverage here. Um, And so for that reason, I I think that we're we're defensible in the way that we cover elections. Um, But it does make you wonder, um, as Maroon 5 once said. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's it. I don't even... Okay, there are so many things to respond to there. One is that I don't recognize that Maroon 5 line, which suggests that it's from some deep song in their inner catalog, which suggests you're familiar with their inner catalog. No, it really makes me wonder. I find alarming. Makes me wonder. You don't remember that song? It was like a hit in 2012. Mm. Maybe. I'm of the belief that this election and all elections really do matter. And one of the things that I think is most important this time around is not just who gains control of the House or Senate, but really paying attention to governor's races, as you have covered so well, Idris, the ascendance of different Republican candidates who are going to be overseeing elections in 2024, who believe and have propagated the idea that the 2020 election was stolen is really striking. And I think that makes this election different than those that came before. I'd agree with that. There are also some interesting ballot initiatives as ever. I mean, in this week's Economist, we have a piece about South Dakota, which is a very conservative state where it looks like voters are about to take advantage of Obamacare 12 years on and expand Medicaid. So there are all sorts of interesting things happening statewide on Tuesday. But I think what we'll probably spend most of the podcast analyzing are the consequences for the federal government and also for how elections, federal elections are run in the future. But before we get there, the usual reminder that you should take out an Economist subscription if you don't have one already. You'll definitely want one as the midterm results start to filter through so you can read what Idris and Elliot in particular have to say about them. We'll have analysis from our correspondents all over America. Idris, Charlotte, what have you particularly enjoyed from our midterms coverage so far? It's not part of our midterms coverage, but I, along with my colleagues Tamara and Steve, were able to go to the Supreme Court on Monday to hear their oral arguments over the future of affirmative action, which I think is a very complicated issue to think through. And I think that we've done it in a way that's quite distinctive from what people might be reading elsewhere. I'm very jealous that you got to go to the Supreme Court this week. It's one of the most fascinating things one can do as a reporter in Washington. I have been enjoying the midterm series on the intelligence, our sister show. All of those episodes are going to be posted on Saturday. So if you've missed any of them, you can go back and listen to reporting by Stevie Hertz and by John Fasman, who listeners of this show will know well. 
But I have to make a plug for our climate coverage this week. The next big climate conference is about to occur in Egypt. We have really an astonishing array of incredibly rich expert analysis that looks at the climate problem in a very clear-eyed way, including a long special report on climate adaptation and an explanation of why the 1.5 degree target is really racing out of our reach and what to do about that. So I highly recommend everyone read this week's issue. All right. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. Hey, Arizona, want to save democracy? Vote for our next Secretary of State. With its bright colours, cartoonish text and bouncy soundtrack, the ad is quite clearly trying to be down with the kids. What the f*** is a Secretary of State? Great question. It's their job to protect our elections. You know, so when you vote, your vote actually counts. It's made by a pro-democracy group which aims to emphasise the importance of down-ballot races, like Secretary of State, to young voters. You've been very critical of the 2020 election results. Um, would you, as Secretary of State, have signed off on those results? There are too many hypotheticals to really answer that question because we didn't know what we knew. Mark Fincham is one of 11 Republican candidates for Secretary of State who have questioned the results of the 2020 election. He was near the Capitol on January the 6th, although he denies being part of any violence. And he used to be a member of the far-right militia group, the Oath Keepers. He's running on a slate organized by Jim Marchant, the Republican candidate for Secretary of State over in Nevada. President Trump and I lost an election in 2020 because of a rigged election. I've been working since November 4th, 2020 to expose what happened. And what I found out is horrifying. And when I'm Secretary of State of Nevada, we're going to fix it. And when my coalition of Secretary of State candidates around the country get elected, we're going to fix the whole country. And President Trump is going to be president again in 2024. Both are in tight races. It's quite conceivable that these two men will be in charge of organizing and certifying the 2024 presidential election in two crucial swing states. But the prize for the darling of the election deniers probably goes to a gubernatorial candidate. I think it comes down, frankly, to one sentence. We want to replace the woke garbage with common sense. Arizona's Carrie Lake. It's pretty simple. The former TV news anchor offers up Trumpism with a polished sheen. She's called the 2020 election corrupt and stolen, and in an interview with CNN, refused to say that she'd accept defeat if she loses her election this year. Will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. In 2020, Donald Trump pressured Arizona's outgoing governor, Doug Ducey, to decertify the elections. Ducey resisted. If Lake wins, she'll be in his place next time. There's a host of candidates at Senate, House and state level running on the GOP ticket who think similarly. Election denying in the Republican Party has become normalised. Democrats are keen to remind voters about this. This is no ordinary year. So I ask you to think long and hard about the moment we're in. 
In a typical year, we're often not faced with questions of whether the vote we cast will preserve democracy or put us at risk. But this year we are. This is the most important midterm election in the modern history of our country because we are taking on a political party, the Republicans, who literally are trying to undermine American democracy. But this year, Democrats have also spent money boosting some Republican election deniers in their party primaries. The idea was that these wackos would then be easier for Democrats to beat in November. But it's a bit hard to do this and then also argue, correctly, that democracy itself is on the ballot. That's not the only problem with the message. Democrats, like Joe Biden earlier this week, or Bernie Sanders crunching through Vermont's fall leaves, have been trying to make these elections a referendum on democracy. And it isn't working. The national mood is turning against Democrats, with even races that should be a cakewalk, like governorships in New York and Oregon, at risk. It's not that the future of democracy doesn't matter to voters. Research from Pew finds that 70% of Americans think it's a very important issue, and only slightly more of those are Democrats than Republicans. But both sides paint the other as the bigger threat. In this case, Democrats are right. But election administration is a niche interest, and come election day, it seems it's not going to matter all that much to voters. So Idris, ever since 2020, one of your special subjects has been the Secretary of State races, these races that previously most people, even most political junkies, didn't pay much attention to, but actually really important when it comes to the plumbing of how American elections work, and which could potentially become really, really important next time around in in 2024. Given all that reporting you've been doing, how important is next week for how America's elections are administered and will be administered in the future? I think that next week will be incredibly important. In 2020, All 50 states certify their election results, despite incredible pressure from Donald Trump and his allies for them not to do so in the states that he lost. And in two states in particular, in Georgia and Arizona, there were Republican governors uh, who resisted Donald Trump. And what we see now is that that break within the party has not led to wholesale rejection of the party. It's instead led to a new kind of Republican who is basically only willing to certify elections in which their side wins. So we've seen, for example, with Carrie Lake, one of the things that she said just recently was, the truth is Joe Biden did not win with 81 million votes. And if you believe that he did, then you are the conspiracy theorist, which is just, you know, a different reality. And I remember seeing her on the night that she won her primary in Arizona against an unexpectedly stiff challenge from a moderate, uh, moderate being defined as someone who doesn't th- think the last election was stolen. And on election night, she was losing by 10 points. And she gave the speech where she says, well, she declared victory. And then she said, we see that they're doing it again. Um, the next the next day, you know, the, the, the polls had reversed and, and, and she was very much ahead. And suddenly uh, that conspiracy vanished. I mean, it just it's completely outcome driven. But my fear is if you have someone like Carrie Lake, who's in charge of elections in Arizona, if you have people who are secretaries of state like Mark Fincham, people like Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, who would get to appoint the secretary of state in Pennsylvania, then we could enter a previously unthinkable scenario in which states refuse to certify election results in which their preferred candidate loses. 
And I don't think we have a full grasp of what would follow afterwards. I think that there would obviously be a tremendous uh, legal challenge. It would ultimately go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, I don't think, is nearly as willing to toss aside democracy as uh, a lot of elected Republicans. But that's still, I mean, that takes you one notch closer to the will of the people ultimately being rejected. So I think it's incredibly consequential uh, in that regard. And just to make clear what we're talking about here, the concern is less that the elections next week won't be properly counted and certified. It's about if these candidates win next week, what could happen in 2024? Yeah, I have to say, I wonder, Idris, and I'm curious from your reporting about this in the final weeks of the campaign, the degree to which voters are really paying attention to this, because Surely this is something that we're fascinated by because American democracy hangs in the balance. And you hear Democrats like Bernie Sanders trying to make this a big deal. But actually, the short-term question that people are interested in is inflation. We're thinking about crime. You see a lot of the messages recently from Republican candidates being bread and butter issues. So I wonder the degree to which the swing voters are not really necessarily going for a radicals ideas about the 2020 election, but they're rather voting against Biden's record, against his record on inflation, a record on immigration. Either way, whether they're voting for the radicals ideas, i.e. the election was stolen, or voting in a more conventional way that they don't like Biden's economic policies, you have a radical who wins and democracy who loses in the long term. So I agree with you that in the long term, the consequences may be dire and by long term, just two years out, right, relatively soon. So it seems to me that many of the voters who are going to decide this election, you know, aren't thinking about these long term consequences in the way that you are. They're thinking about how much their grocery bill costs next week. Yeah, I think that's right. The whole problem is that in a general election, statements like these are not disqualifying to the general public. But in a Republican primary, they're in fact, very helpful to getting yourself selected as the candidate. And that's resulted in that in this dynamic where fairly radical Republicans, you know, have an advantage. Uh, Trump's endorsement has helped a lot in this regard. And when it comes to the general, they're not seen as particularly immoderate. I mean, they're seen as probably primarily a check against Joe Biden, um, like you said. Yeah, I remain stunned by Democrats bet in the Trump era that you should actively support an outlandish candidate because you think you'll beat them in the general. I mean, the idea that Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania was spending to support Doug Mastriano in the primaries, I just am floored by. It conveys a stunning overconfidence by Democrats and, frankly, a very irresponsible set of decisions. I guess I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, most Americans don't think and haven't had to think, frankly, about how election administration works in the country. You know, once you get into the weeds of how elections are counted and certified in America, it's a bit head spinning, right? And you have to get into the weeds on the Electoral Count Act. You have to learn about the roles of Secretary of State, which is probably not an office you paid a whole load of attention to. Now, because of what happened in 2020, these offices suddenly really matter. And in Secretary of State races, you're seeing people raise millions of dollars, which is a new thing in American politics. So I think there's a kind of adjustment there. And then the other thing I'd say, I think, is that the Democratic argument, big D Democratic argument here, that they are the party saving democracy. You know, you can make that argument, but it's so obviously self-serving. I wonder how useful it is. I mean, if you're really to go hard on that, I think the logic would be as a Democratic Party, you maybe wouldn't put up candidates against Republicans who 
you know, did accept the results of the 2020 election. And there are quite a few of those. But the Democratic Party is not going to go that far, right? Because it wants to win office. And so I think this aim to make this election towards the end all about a referendum on democracy, though I'm sympathetic to my ear, just sounds a bit self-serving. All right, we'll be back in a moment with some more nihilism and also to hear some of the closing arguments of the campaign. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com earlier we heard a snippet of joe biden's speech from this week where he was arguing that democracy itself is at stake in these elections A more familiar Democratic site on the campaign trail as polling day nears has actually been a former president, Barack Obama. Over the past week or so, he's been in swing states like Georgia, Wisconsin and Nevada, where he addressed an issue high on voters' minds, inflation. Republicans, they talk about it a lot, but what's their answer exactly? What what is their economic policy? No, no, they've got one. They want to gut Social Security and Medicare and then give their wealthy friends and big corporations more tax cuts. And because that's their answer to everything. I'm not joking. Literally, it does not matter what's going on. When inflation is low and unemployment is high, they want tax cuts. When it's the reverse, tax cuts. I I, I was telling some folks in Michigan, if if there was an asteroid headed towards Earth right now, they'd all get in the room. They'd say, you know what you need? We got to cut taxes for the wealthy. He and Joe Biden will be in Pennsylvania this weekend. Meanwhile, in Virginia, Idris, you've been hanging out with one of the GOP's closers. Yes, that's right. I spent most of a day driving around with Governor Glenn Youngkin, who has been out to stump in his state and uh, around the country as well for Republicans. Listeners may remember that he was the candidate who in 2021 unexpectedly won the governorship a year after Biden had won his state by 10 points, which was uh, not a good sign for Democrats. Earlier this week, we spent a day together along with a few of his staffers driving to and around Petersburg, which is a small city near Richmond that has fallen under hard times, and which his administration has spent a lot of effort to try to revitalize. Um, On the first chunk of our drive, we talked about how he's feeling about the election. I think think it's going to be a pretty strong showing for Republicans. You know, I've uh, felt for a long time that uh, the focus on common sense answers to these most important issues for voters, which really was the real underpinning to our whole campaign last year, uh, are panning out the exact same as, as they did last year. And I think that voters across the country are recognizing that the concerns that they talk about every night uh, around their kitchen tables are concerns that 
uh, have gotten worse from last year, particularly uh, inflation and the cost of living is running away from everybody, and crime, and real concerns about schools. Later on, we drove to groundbreaking for a large new corporate headquarters in Richmond. So I wanted to ask, um, I think this might be our last ride together. Well, not the last, but maybe, <laughs> maybe last today. Last today. But uh, I wanted to ask about the future of the Republican Party. Easy, easy stuff. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You went out campaigning for folks like Carrie Lake in Arizona, who is different from you, I think, certainly in style, but I think I think also in substance right, as well. Do you, what, what do you like, what do you see that you have in common with someone like Carrie well, Lake? I, I think that uh, Carrie Lake believes that She's got to secure a border. She's got a, she's got a border crisis in Arizona. She's got a law enforcement crisis in Arizona. She's got an education crisis in Arizona. Um, and she's got a cost of living crisis in Arizona. Those are the issues she's got to go work on as governor. And when you pick through what, she's, what she said she's going to go do, it's to address those issues. She made the center of her primary campaign, the 2020 election, how it was shoddy and, and corrupt and all this stuff. Do you think that that's an, an issue? Is that... You know, there's a lot of people across the country who feel a real lack of faith in the election process. And by the way, it's not just right. Republicans. And we saw it in 2016 Somebody from the Democrats. Uh, and what it constantly reminds me is that my job as governor and other governors' jobs is to reinforce the election process, to invest in it. We ended the day at an outdoor evening rally in Culpeper County in Virginia's 7th District. There, Youngkid was out stumping for Yesley Vega, who's a fairly right-wing candidate, in her bid to unseat the Democratic incumbent Abigail Spanberger. He traded in his suit for his signature red vest, which he sported on the campaign trail last year. And while there, he sounded some different notes. You know, the spirit of Virginia is alive and well. And of course, what we've seen is, is the left liberal Democrats are trying to squeeze it out. We know what happens because we saw it here in the Commonwealth. Go on a walk with me. Go on a walk with me. Just remember when all of a sudden Virginia was locked tight, everything was shut. You remember that, Virginia? Schools were closed and parents were told that a 14-inch screen was a quality education and that they had no role in their children's life. Do you remember that, Virginia? Do you remember when law enforcement was not supported, they were demeaned and and in fact, we had a criminal first, victim last you met system. Do you remember that, Virginia? Yeah. And do you remember when government thought it was their money, not your money? Do you remember that, Virginia? Yes. Well, let me tell you, elections have consequences. Idris, so you spent a bunch of time in the car with Governor Youngkin then. What did you make of him? He's extremely affable, extremely nice. I mean, I I don't know if this might be too niche of an analogy, but if you've ever seen Bojack Horseman, there's a character who's a foil to the melancholic horse named Mr. Peanut Butter, who is a golden retriever turned into a person. I sometimes think of you like Mr. Peanut Butter, but Glenn Youngkin is also uh, like that. He's very happy. You being the melancholy horse in this analogy. Yes, correct. But, you know, what's interesting, he told me in another part that I don't think we played out, but he said that, you know, he thinks of his job as as building a coalition that includes never-Trumpers and forever-Trumpers. And I think that that's something that the Republican Party 
is trying to do at the moment. And you can do that with anger, which is, I think, what Ron DeSantis does. Or you can do it with a kind of happiness, which is, I think, what Glenn Youngkin is doing. One of those gets you on Fox News, and that's why DeSantis is on there all the time. The other one, I think, you know, might be effective, but maybe in a different political environment. I think that's interesting, Idris. I mean, politicians are professionally charismatic, right? And so some of them are better at it than others. But as a group, they're people who know how to turn it on. And I think Glenn Youngkin is one of those who probably does it pretty well. I was struck by him as an example of a broader phenomenon, and certainly you hear it in his stump speech, which is a good reminder for people who are independent analysts looking at some of the rhetoric around stolen elections and getting very concerned, which is that if Republicans win in a landslide, it's not necessarily because the entire country thinks that the election was stolen. It's because of the issues that he highlighted on crime, on the response to COVID, on the economy. These are issues on which one can have a differing point of view. And you can think that the criticism is not well-founded, but it's a matter of opinion. Whether the election was stolen is is not. It's a matter of fact. And so I think that Republicans, as we've discussed, may be well successful because of uh, these sort of bread and butter issues. The other thing, though, that I would say about Youngkin is that you hear even people like him, who I think, Idris, you'd characterize as not in the Carrie Lake mold. I was really struck after the attack on Paul Pelosi last week that Youngkin made light of it on the campaign trail and said, there's no room for violence anywhere, but we're going to send her back to be in California with him. I just was floored by that. I think you see Republicans really skating on the edge and in some instances going way over the line of rhetoric that is just dangerous and atrocious. And I'm girding myself for what happens with Twitter next. Um, Elon Musk also, in a post that was subsequently deleted, made light of the Pelosi attack and seemed to suggest that there may have been something else at play. Um, the idea that you have this huge platform going forward that may be much more lenient in the type of information that is posted and how it's disseminated, that may let Trump back on to its platform. All of these things make me feel like the next two years are going to be rocky ones. Idris, Glenn Youngkin ended his speech there by reminding us all that elections have consequences. What will the consequences be for how the federal government works if Republicans win the House and maybe the Senate too? Well, given that Joe Biden will remain president for the next two years, I think that Republicans taking one uh, chamber of Congress will mean that there won't be terribly much legislating done. There will be a lot of investigations performed on various bits of the government, on the president's son. And I think the only way that Congress will be able to pass things will probably be these high stakes negotiations around deadlines like the debt ceiling or the renewal of the federal budget. I think that we would we would enter a pretty lean stage of, of legislating. And, you know, I think that we're not that far off, I mean, God forbid, from the start of the presidential election. And with Congress in stasis, I think that there you'll see the jostling start to begin. I mean, obviously, you see Donald Trump is not really hiding the fact that he wants to be the nominee in 2024 again. I think it's an open question of whether Joe Biden is the nominee. I think you might see some jostling from Democrats to try to replace him with the focus off of policy, which I actually think the last two years have been relatively focused on on policy, certainly compared to the Trump era, I think will return to a more sort of contentious, personality-focused equilibrium. 
It's funny. I was talking with John Fasman about this, and we were debating how long this next political period would persist. And he said, medium term, I think it's going to be ugly, but long term, I think it will be okay because there'll be a swing back. And I said, well, what do you mean by long term? And he said something like 2045, maybe 2050. And I loved that as a true long term outlook. I read maybe a few years ago, John Dos Passos wrote this trilogy on, which is called the USA Trilogy, which is about the heady 1920s and 1910s. And if you read it, you just get a wave of anxiety about how contentious things were, how much society felt like it was falling apart. And there's some residences with America, you know, ravaged by Spanish flu, intense political disagreement, these sorts of things. But what you remember is this happened 100 years ago, and there was a period of, of restoration. It took a lot of conflict to get there, but ultimately there, there was a, a light at the end of the tunnel, which hopefully there will be as well here. I mean, Idris ending on an upbeat note, I can't top that. So let's go to the quiz immediately. In our final issue before the 2018 midterms, we wrote that the country is more divided and angry than it has been in decades. Sadly, the same could still be said today. Here are a couple of questions about the makeup of the House after the 2018 midterms. And the closest to the correct answer will win. Question one. So in January 2019, 38% of Democrats in the House of Representatives were white men. What percentage of House Republicans were white men? 60. Uh, hmm. I'm going to go with 65. Not so much bigger. I'm going for a Price is Right type strategy. I like that strategy. I mean, you win on the basis that you're closer, but actually the number's 90%. So 90% of the Republican House caucus in 2019 was made up of white men. Question two, what percentage of Whole Foods market locations were in districts represented by Democrats? Ooh, 97. 95. No, sorry. No, 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 no. 96, 96. (laughs) Okay, you, so we have to apply because these both have figures. You have to do a, you have to have a Price is Right. Um, do people know the rules of Price is Right? Is this something that you have in Britain? It's a thing. Okay. Idris is closer this time because of the strategy that you guys adopted. So, it's seventy-eight percent. You get a bonus point. No, we both lose no points if you exceed under the Price is Right rules. You both lose. No one oh, gets a you? dishwasher. Oh, I thought Idris yeah. was closer, so he We're got the dishwasher. Luck. No, no dishwashers. Sad. Even grumpier for news for Idris. Yeah. Yet more washing your cocktail glasses by hand. You guys Mm. can get a bonus point, however. Maybe redeem yourselves if you can name the state with the most Whole Foods markets. California. Texas. It's California is the correct answer. Nice. Well done, Charlotte. I think you get a dishwasher and some other sort of (laughs) maybe a microwave, (laughs) a kettle. Mm. Well, you have to do a population adjusted, don't you? Yeah, if we did population adjusted, but how would that? Yeah, mm. then, then just accept that you lost with grace. Then, then it would be Vermont, probably, right? <laughs> just accept that you lost. Um, it's yet another triumph for Charlotte in this week's quiz. I think just for those who are keeping score at home and who isn't. Well, next week when the three of us gather, we will know the results. But for now, thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you. You'll also be able to catch all three of us on a subscriber-only event 
at 4 p.m. Eastern Time next Thursday. So that's the Thursday after the midterm. So if you're an Economist subscriber, please tune into that and you can ask us lots of difficult questions. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast. New York Mayor's Eric Adams is a guest on The Economist Asks this week. If you like this podcast or any of the other ones The Economist produces, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That makes a big difference to how many people can find the podcasts and listen to them. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.